According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 1 as we get started this morning. Luke chapter 1. We will be concluding this first section today, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Looking at these issues here in Luke 1, 5 through 25. We've covered two of the points of study already, and we just have the third point of study to cover this morning in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we study this morning, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we uh, took about ten minutes to make some announcements and things and to hand out some some notes that are available up front here. You won't necessarily need them for this class, but you'll want to pick them up before you you walk out this morning. As we uh, are dealing with Luke chapter 1, we're looking at the, uh, the section here of our Harmony that is titled The Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. And uh, this is a period of Christ's life that we know very little about, uh, but it's important that we understand the issues uh, in terms of laying the foundations before we actually get into his ministry. The bulk of our study, of course, begins with the baptism of Jesus Christ at the, at the Jordan River. And uh, prior to that, we know very little. We have the incident when he was 12 years old and, and uh, when his parents went to the temple. And we'll look at that, of course. But uh, the bulk of this uh, study will come from the uh, baptism of the River Jordan and forward. These other issues, though, are important in terms of background, uh, specifically as they relate to the baptizer and as they relate to uh, the Lord's family, the immediate family and the extended family. Uh, we have just glimpses here, uh, even a single word which tantalizes us and wants us to learn more, but Scripture doesn't give us any more. Uh, I highlighted for you last week the verse in Luke 1, in verse 36, when the angel is speaking to the Virgin Mary, and he says, And behold, even your relative, or your kinsman, or your cousin, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age. And so we know that there is a family connection between Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary. But we don't precisely know what that connection is. We would love to know more, being the curious folks that we are. But Scripture does not give us that greater detail any more than than we have it. Uh, We know that Mary was of the line of David in the tribe of Judah. We know that uh, Elizabeth was of the daughters of Aaron. And uh, Zacharias was a priest uh, of a descendant of Aaron in the line of Abijah. And so whatever the connection was between Mary's Davidic family and the tribe of Judah and uh, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth's priestly family in the tribe of Levi, we just don't know. Uh, marriage connection, obviously, but we just don't know how that came about or under what circumstances. And so we allow Scripture to remain silent when it wants to remain silent. We don't try to press the details. However, uh, some of these will come into uh, play in, in later studies 
the, uh, the immediate and distant family of Jesus comes into play when we start to break down the disciples. Because uh, when we start to do the homework in comparing the four different Gospels, uh, the women that were present at the cross, and uh, other areas of study there, we are led to conclude, I think quite convincingly, that James and John, uh, the sons of thunder, were not only two disciples of Jesus Christ, but they were in fact cousins of Jesus Christ. That uh, their mother, uh, Salome, or Salome, was the sister of Mary, the mother of the humanity of Jesus. And I think we can break that down in uh, pretty convincing terms. So, wrapping up this morning, the outline that we were working on last week, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, we gave you in a point one issues here as they related to Herod. And I forgot to uh, write down my little cheat sheet as far as which slides were which, so we'll just have to rapidly roll through them. Uh, and we gave you some points of study on King Herod and spent the bulk of our time last week, I think, focusing on Herod, giving us some of the history involved and some of the some of the uh, intertestamental information that's, that comes between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Very important uh, isagogical studies, not only for this, but for really all New Testament studies. And uh, I'll just roll through these, scribe, uh, through these uh, scrolls here without following up on them. The, uh, of course, the Roman history and the conflicts between Mark Antony and Octavius as a matter of historical record, and then the the love affair with Cleopatra and so forth as the matter for movies and romance and all of that. But it does touch upon the events of Judea because of Herod and his uh, close relationship with both Octavius and Mark Antony and the absolute hatred that uh, Cleopatra had for him and the conflict and, and territory disputes that they had. The second area of study that we gave you last week with relationship to Luke chapter 1 was uh, focusing in on Zechariah and Elizabeth from verses 5 through 7, where we simply read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years, we have this description here with some interesting information. Again, sketchy. We want more details in some ways, but we're not going to get them. So we just simply take scripture for what it says and we allow the silence to remain silent. We uh, referred you back to the life of David's study when he organized the priesthood into the 24 divisions 16 from the line of Eleazar, 8 from the line of Ithamar, and uh, spoke briefly about the different divisions and their appointed times of service. Uh, in reality, the, the best notes for this are going to come out in the Book of Acts series. Uh, Warren Dowd is putting out some tremendous material on the priesthood, on the divisions of service, and so forth. And uh, I'll simply refer you to that material there when it gets published. Uh, Elizabeth was likewise the priestly line of Aaron, and so that family connection with uh, Mary... We know what's there according to verse 36, but we're not entirely certain how it's there. Under point C, they're described as righteous and blameless. Righteous and blameless. Dikaios and amemptos. And uh, interesting terms with only one other person in all of Scripture being described in, uh, in this parallel. And that being Noah in Genesis 6 and verse 9. A lot of people are described as being righteous. We understand how we obtain righteousness. 
We obtain righteousness not by anything we've done, not by anything we've earned and deserved, but by virtue of placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we have God's righteousness imputed to our account. That's how Abraham obtained righteousness. It says in Genesis uh, uh, 15, 6, that he believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And uh, such is the case, always has been the case, before the cross and after the cross. Faith in the promises of God results in the uh, salvation, results in the uh, imputation of righteousness. But to link up righteousness and blamelessness is, uh, is something else altogether. They are not only believers in Christ, but they are walking in the fear of the Lord. They are walking in grace, walking by faith, described uh, in these ways here in verse 6. Walking blamelessly. See, righteous in the sight of God, that's the first part of verse 6, that relates to position. But then walking blamelessly refers to their walk. So you have top circle, bottom circle, we see how these things are now played out. God-fearing believers, advanced in age, Serving the Lord as priests, serving the Lord in their, in their uh, divisions, along with their Levitical responsibilities, not knowing that, uh, that uh, their childlessness was for a purpose. And as I said last week, we kind of joked a little bit, how old do you have to be in order to, to qualify for that advanced in age, you know, advanced in years? Well, Lord knows, they were clearly advanced in years. They were past the point where uh, they could expect to be having babies, you know, just like Abraham, just like Sarah, uh, whatever age that is, they, they knew or thought they knew that their, uh, their opportunity to have children was gone. And beyond, I, I'm hoping that we can emphasize this well enough this morning, beyond just simply being a cultural um, issue, and childlessness was a cultural issue, it was a reproach uh, for a woman to be barren or to not have children, it was, it was magnified so much more when you start talking about the, the priestly lineage. That Zechariah was expected to be having sons that would carry on that line of Abijah, that, that uh, priestly lineage here. Here's a, one out of the, the 24 lines that's not going to be followed, uh, in potential at least. So, um, I think there's a lot of, of, of uh, issues with children and and things that uh, really get misapplied in the 21st century American church um, because we lose sight of the fact that Israel was an earthly people with earthly promises, with earthly territory, with earthly land inheritance, and the, the passing on of, of, uh, of that was, was vital in their covenant promises, in their responsibility as unto the Lord. Uh, you know, if the... If the if the Bolander line ever died out, oh well, <laughs> you know, not going to thwart the plan of God any. But under Old Testament times, the tribes and the clans and the families and the, the passing on, of, it wasn't just the passing on of a name, it was the continued, um, uh, the continued testimony of the Lord's faithfulness in the tribal inheritance, in the land inheritance promises that were given to Abraham. Very important in that time. And for the priests, very much so. And they've been asked to live. God the Father assigned them the work assignment to go childless all this time. Part of their work assignment for however age they were, however long they've been married, was to not have children. Now, did they understand that? You know, the, they didn't have a, a promise of, of a child until this point of time. So under point three now, 
Gabriel appears to Zacharias as a response to his prayers. He appears to Zacharias as a response to his prayers. The uh, specific statement is made in verse 13. Your petition has been heard. Your petition has been heard. We don't exactly know how prayer works. <laughs> we don't exactly know how, with six billion people on the planet right now, and however many million of them are praying at any given point of time, how the Father sorts them all out. I have a hard time with four children. And they all start screaming and asking questions and talking all at once, and you've got to stop and say, whoa, 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 slow down, wait a minute. One at a time now. What are you saying? What are you asking? And it's hard enough with, with just four children. Or I couldn't imagine Heidi. <laughs> all right? But now, put it on a, the scale of six billion people on the planet and however many are truly regenerate, born-again believers in Christ, and out of those, how many are praying at any given time? And the Father is hearing all those prayers, answering all those prayers. He's, know, he's known the needs before they were even asked. Gabriel is described here. He says, I am Gabriel, in verse 19, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So he is a direct eyewitness. Uh, when he says your prayer, your petition has been heard, he was there in the presence of God, in the throne room. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So this is a direct response to his prayers. What does this tell us about, about Zechariah's faith? <laughs> I mean, he's... Righteous and blameless, he's a man of prayer, he's a man of faith. At whatever age he is, still praying for a child at this age. And the answer comes. If you did pick up this uh, sheet on your way uh, in or before we got started, then you will have the outline here. There's an A, B, and a C that we'll be looking at this morning. If you don't have it, you can just follow along on the screen and pick up the sheet on your way out. So point A, John here is going to become a son born by means of a miracle and named by the commandment of God. He is a son born by means of a miracle, his mother being advanced in age beyond childbearing years, and named by the commandment of God. That's verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. Alright. So this, uh, can you think of any other uh, circumstances, Old Testament, New Testament, where a son was born by means of a miracle and named by the commandment of God? Okay, Jesus Christ, that's coming up in the next chapter. The virgin conceived, that's a miracle. And he was named by God. In fact, he was named by God a couple different times. He had a prophetic name given to him in the book of Isaiah. What was that name? So we get to do a little bit more of this intimate type interaction. We're a bit more relaxed on Wednesday mornings. His prophetic name, behold, a virgin shall... Emmanuel. That's right, Emmanuel. But then when the angel appears to Mary and uh, gives him a name... What name is he given here? He's given the name Jesus. He never does take the name uh, Emmanuel in the gospel record. And that's, uh, that's a wonderful study for millennial studies too, by the way. What name will he bear when he rules as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? He's going to be King 
Emmanuel, the greater son of David. And the uh, government shall be on his shoulders. So there will be no end to the increase of his government in the, uh, in the issues there. Uh, what other sons do we have, Old Testament, born of a miraculous nature and named by God? Isaac, there you go. Where do you find that story? Genesis, okay, good, good. Didn't know I was going to grill you this morning, did you? All right. Miraculous, of course, because Sarah was 90 years old. Um, the name Yitzchak, meaning laughter, because Sarah had, in fact, laughed when the promise was given that she would bear a son by this time next year. And uh, I imagine you're 89 years old and you've been married since you were 12. And, um, you know, you kind of get convinced by that point in time that you're not going to have any babies. And then uh, you're 89 years old and the Lord says, nope, this time next year you're going to have a baby. And she just laughs and names her son Laughter. What a, what a promise. Anybody else? That was not necessarily miraculous, but it was an answer to prayer. She was praying and fasting and dedicated him to the Lord. And uh, the Lord never commanded him to be named Samuel, but she named him Shemuel, uh, the Lord has heard, and uh, gave him to the Lord for a priestly service the rest of his life. Uh, the twins, Jacob and Esau, um, they were, uh, she, Isaac and Rebekah had been married for 20 years. Don't know that she was actually advanced in age by then, but because um, we don't know how old she was when they got married, but they've been married 20 years, and Isaac by this time is, is uh, 60, 40 when he got married, 60 when he had a child, and uh, the Lord opened the womb, provided twins, and, and named them. So, anyway, issues there. Um, we have a lot of shadows, a lot of typology, a lot of anticipation, and so... What I'm trying to, to communicate this morning, last week and this morning and in the weeks ahead, is the, the sense of um, expectancy that very few in Israel even had anymore. It's been 400 years since Malachi. You can imagine for a culture, for, a, for God's chosen people, for the Jews living in the land who for centuries had prophets and priests and kings and miracles and uh, all of the, 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 the Old Testament being concluded, and now they're waiting day by day by day by day for the Christ to appear um, without any prophets, without any miracles. The, uh, the intertestamental period, the silent years, are, are, are a very interesting study because now the forerunner is being born. Now prophets are once again making an appearance into the land. Not only the Baptist himself, which would be the greatest of those born among women and heralding the coming Christ, but even others that we're going to see, Simeon and Anna in the temple, that were called upon to be witnesses. See, God will always do things with two and three witnesses. And uh, we'll see them coming up as, as the Christ child is born and introduced to the temple and uh, these things in the study here. All right, secondly, he is a son born with a specific purpose. In the grace eternal plan of the ages. A son born with a specific purpose. In the grace eternal plan of the ages. Now the real secret to this is that every single one of us is born for a specific purpose in the grace eternal plan of the ages. It just so happens though that John's was spelled out in scripture 400 years ahead of time. And in some ways 700 years ahead of time. And it was also reiterated 
in the months leading up to his birth. Because it was reiterated here in Luke 1, it's going to be celebrated and sung in Zacharias' song of praise at the end of Luke chapter 1. But it was prophesied in Malachi and even uh, uh, portions of the, uh, of the uh, prophecy even given back in the book of Isaiah 700 years before Christ. By the way, the, I like the way the, uh, the Passion of the Christ opens. We're gonna, a lot of the church members are going to go out there tomorrow night at 7 o'clock and see that. I guess John's been getting phone calls and there could be quite a crowd there tomorrow night. I didn't realize. Um, but uh, I like the way the movie opens because it opens with the words to Isaiah 53 on the screen. Uh, that he was numbered as the transgressors and uh, like you know, he was led as a sheep silently. And I'm misquoting it here this morning. But they quoted from Isaiah 53, and then they pointed out 700 years before Christ. And then they proceeded on into the, into the narrative of the Passion. And, uh, and I like that, because the cross was foretold uh, centuries before he, uh, before he went. Let's look at this now, verse 15. Again, this is the angel. The angel in verse 13 said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Yohanan. Grace of Jehovah. And uh, actually did, I thought I included some of that in the notes here, but I did not. But uh, Hanan is grace or favor, and uh, with the Yahweh in front of it, the grace of Jehovah. You will name him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. As I said, they were in a sorry state of affairs. Um, living for 400 years with expectancy, with imminency, and when it doesn't come, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come, people lose that sense of imminency. I mean, look at the church today. How many are truly looking for the rapture today? Here we are 2,000 years later living with a sense of imminency. Clearly the first century had it. You read 1 Thessalonians and the Thessalonians had it. Paul had it. They were eagerly waiting for the coming Christ. The early church was waiting for the parousia. One of the most common subjects of all the church fathers. I don't know if you read the church fathers at all, but they were caught up in the idea of the parousia, the coming. It was a, it was a dominant theme in the early church. But how many today are truly looking day by day for that imminent appearing of Christ on the clouds? And uh, clearly when you look at the, the scribes and the Pharisees and all of the rebukes that the Baptist gives them and Christ gives them, calling them a brood of vipers, we see their religious legalism and they, uh, they truly needed to repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why the message was what it was. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, before the Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Alright, he's a son born with a specific promise. Now, Let's turn back to Malachi. Let's turn back to Malachi chapter 4. Verses 5 and 6. 
before you even read the words of Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, do you notice anything? Anything jump out at you uh, when you look at Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6? Yeah, that's the end of the Old Testament. This is the final word. These are the final words. It's kind of like looking to the final words of Revelation, the final words of the New Testament. Here's the final words of the Old Testament that then uh, closed the canon of Scripture, that then uh, began the, the, what we call the 400 silent years. Um, verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay, two things immediately we want to understand is that Elijah the prophet did not physically die. He was caught up to heaven in the fiery chariot. We know that. We're familiar with the story of Elijah from 1 Kings. We're also familiar with the term the great and terrible day of the Lord because this book comes on the heels of all the other minor prophets. This book comes on the heel of Joel in particular. comes on the heels of, of uh, Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah. comes on the heels of Ezekiel. All of the prophetic record that was looking ahead to the what we know now as Second Advent prophecies. All right. Another thing that we're going to have to keep straight in our Life of Christ series is um, we're going to have to step out of our perspective a little bit because we have the advantage of being in between First Advent and Second Advent, and we can look back and see the past completed prophecies, and we can look forward and see the yet unfulfilled prophecies. And so we have that perspective in between. What we want to do when we put ourselves back into the gospel and put ourselves back into the Old Testament looking forward is that we have prophecies of the Christ and it is not certain that we're talking about two separate comings. So if we can, in a, in a sense, divorce ourselves from that the perspective that we have now and put ourselves back into the perspective they had then, We'll do a lot better in understanding the scriptures as they're fulfilled when we see them fulfilled in the in the uh, in the gospels. And if we have time this hour, I'll do a little exercise with that and show you what I'm talking about when we uh, when we break this down for you. So, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Um, even in this immediate context, forget the book of Joel. Even in this immediate context, you notice verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, you and I understand that's a second advent prophecy. But to Israel, looking to their coming Christ, that distinction was not as clear. I mean, this is... Pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> but you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says uh, Jehovah Yahweh Tzibayoth, the Lord God of hosts. So this is second advent. And keep that context in mind as well when we talk about the coming forerunner, Elijah the prophet, is coming second advent. And yet here we have a forerunner coming first advent. I hope these things will uh, will make sense. All right? So, 
We have here a son born with a specific purpose in the grace eternal plan of the ages. Verses 15 through 17 of Luke 1 says that he is coming as fulfillment. Does it say as fulfillment? What does it say? Let's look back here again. It says in verse 17, It is he who will go before him, but it says in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And that is a quote. And then uh, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Subpoint one now. I guess they both came up on the same slide. How about that? He is the first advent forerunner. The first advent forerunner. When when we look at the context of Malachi 4, it's pretty obvious that that is a second advent forerunner. That's portrayed there. We can view that obviously from our perspective now in between the two advents. That, that the framework of Malachi 4 is grounded in second advent. And part of what helps us to understand this is the phrase, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not the literal Elijah. He is not the literal Elijah. Elijah was caught up to heaven in a fiery chariot. He was not then re-implanted into Elizabeth's womb to be born again as John the Baptist. He is still with the Lord, and we know that, because he appears in glory with Moses talking to Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah and John the Baptist are two separate people. But the phrase, spirit and power of Elijah, is very important. Remember, Part of this goes into our uh, shaky understanding of Old Testament spirituality. Goes into uh, Elisha's request to have a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Things that you and I have a hard time to relate to because you and I are indwelled with the Holy Spirit from the moment of our salvation. We have the universal indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. When we're filled, when we are in fellowship, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so how full is that? <laughs> is that do we have five gallons? Ten gallons? hundred gallons? I mean, how do you measure that? Well, we're full. We have fullness. He's infinite. How do you double that? So part of this goes into Old Testament spirituality of which we do not have a whole lot of information. Pastors have done some work on it and have all admitted that there's more to be done because uh, I don't think anyone's really given an exhaustive treatment on that I've been satisfied with anyway. In the spirit and power of Elijah. After Elijah was caught, or before he went into the chariot, he actually, his mantle passed to uh, Elisha. And after he departed, that double spirit was given to him. And uh, Elisha did twice the miracles. If you recall, Elijah raised one man from the dead or resuscitated one person to life. Elisha resuscitated two persons to, to life. And, of course, they were both types of Christ because Christ resuscitated three to physical life. A lot of parallels there between Elijah and Elisha and how between the two of them they, they pictured Christ in so many different ways. So he, he was the first Advent forerunner, not the second Advent forerunner. 
He went forward in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he was not the literal Elijah. All right, for this, let's look at a couple of side passages. Uh, Matthew 17, I think, gives us some good clues on this. Matthew 17. Because Scripture's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. Christ isn't saying two different things. The promise made in Scripture was for the second advent forerunner. The promise made to Zacharias was for a first advent forerunner that would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, have a similar role to play in the first advent that Elijah will have in the second advent. I hope that becomes clear. All right, Matthew 17. Keep in mind, I like the context of this. Uh, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and they went up to the mountain. He was transfigured before them. Remember, he laid aside all of his privileges for his earthly ministry, but on this event, the Father allowed that glory to shine forth, and they saw his glory. They also saw Moses and Elijah that appeared to them, talking with him, talking with Christ. Then, of course, Elijah, uh, Peter, who's always sticking his foot in his mouth and <laughs> saying things, he wants to start building tabernacles and, and uh, make this a holy mountain and so forth. <coughs> so we have the context of this. Now notice, uh, verse 9, As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. This private viewing was to be held secret until the resurrection. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now they're confused. They're confused. They just saw a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah talking to a glorified Christ on the mountain. And then the glory passes, and Christ says, You can't breathe a word of that until the resurrection. And so they say, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do, they, why do they read Malachi and understand that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That's yet future. It's going to happen. Second advent. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. That the, the first advent forerunner was John the Baptist. And they understood that. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. That just as there will be coming now a herald of Christ's second advent, who will come, who will fulfill that work assignment described in Malachi, who will herald the coming of Christ in glory, so too the Father provided a herald for first advent. A herald that would introduce the Christ, but not a herald that would introduce the Christ coming in power and great glory, but a herald that would introduce the Christ coming to be afflicted, coming to be put to death. And the herald himself would be afflicted and put to death. And that was the work assignment that, uh, that John the Baptist had, uh, had to fulfill. And he lost his head. We, we, uh, we know the story of his death and the, uh, and the things there. So he was the first advent forerunner. The first advent forerunner. And here is where we start to see areas of, of prophecy that we're going to have to be very careful with. When, when a prophecy is given of the coming Christ in the Old Testament, 
from the standpoint of when it was given, it was not always clear whether it was first advent or second advent. In fact, they had no frame of reference to understand two comings. But we do. But we do. And I hope, um, hope we can have that clear as well. Alright, Malachi. Back to Malachi again. And, uh, the chapter before the chapter we just read, we just read chapter 4, but back up to chapter 3. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may be they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. This likewise is second advent in its scope. This is when Christ purifies the Levitical priesthood so that they can serve Him in the Millennial Temple. And the issues then involved there. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely. Remember, He's going to regather all Israel. Every last Jew on this planet is going to be gathered together at Second Advent. But Ezekiel 20 tells us that the wicked will be purged from their midst. That only believers will enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The judgment of Israel, the wilderness judgment of Israel described in Ezekiel chapter 20, described here in these glimpses here, become quite important. final point to give here. Let me give that and then we'll uh, spend our final minutes here dealing with the nature of prophecies and why the, the distinction between Old Testament and New Te- or, uh, First Advent and Second Advent prophecies are sometimes a little ticklish to deal with. Um, point C now, the last point in this outline. John the Baptist would operate under a lifelong Nazarite vow and be blessed with the lifelong indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, even before His personal salvation. That bugs a lot of people, but uh, all I can do is teach it the way I see it and the way I read it. He was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in His mother's womb. He had not yet been born. He had not yet grown up. He had not yet reached the age of accountability. He had not yet heard the Gospel message. He had not yet placed His faith in the coming Messiah. That point of time will come. And yet he was filled with the Holy Spirit prior to that. I can only think of two instances where unbelievers were provided with the Holy Spirit. Can you think of the other one? In Matthew chapter 10, Christ gives the miraculous power and authority to all twelve apostles, and he sends them out two by two, and that includes the unbeliever John the Baptist. I mean the unbeliever Judas Iscariot. And he's given all the power that Peter, James, John, all the other eleven are given to heal the sick, to cast out demons, 
All the power that the other eleven are given, Judas Iscariot is given that same empowerment. Even though he's an unbeliever, will die an unbeliever. And here's John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He is described as the greatest Old Testament saint. Now the Nazarite vow is found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And um, we can look at that here briefly. Numbers chapter 6. A lifelong Nazarite vow. This is the only recorded instance of Scripture of this happening. Typically, a Nazarite vow was short term. The person taking the vow would take it for a designated period of time, placing themselves under a Nazarite vow for a week, a month, a year, whatever length of time the person placing themselves under that vow desired to place themselves under that vow. And then being removed from that vow was another reason for celebration and sacrifices to be offered in thanksgiving. It was not designed to be for life. The one exception we have in Scripture being the Baptist. John the Baptizer. Um, 21 verses. It's kind of lengthy here to read this. But you'll just notice... Uh, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite uh, comes from the Hebrew, not there, to, uh, to be separated, uh, to dedicate himself to the Lord. So, wherever he is, all right, he's just, uh, he's, he's just a typical Jewish believer and he wants to serve the Lord for a period of time. And, and maybe he's, I mean, he's not a Levite, he's not a priest, he's just, you know, he's, he's uh, just pick out, uh, his name is Doug. You know, Doug from the tribe of Dan, you know, or whoever. He's just a, just a regular Jewish guy. But he sets himself apart. And so he, uh, he leaves his carpentry business, he leaves his farm, he leaves whatever he's doing for a set period of time, and he takes this vow to dedicate himself to the Lord. He shall abstain from wine and strong drink. See, prior to that, of course, he was eligible to, pers- to partake of any adult beverage he wanted within moderation, obviously not drunkenness, but he shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dry grapes. So he was totally a, a teetotaler during the time of his vow. All the days of his separation, it says in verse 4. All the days of his vow, it says in verse 5. No razor shall pass over his head. See, I'm forgetting about Samson, aren't I? <laughs> There's another lifelong Nazarite with, uh, with a hair issue. Samson broke basically every Nazarite vow imaginable. He drank. He got drunk. He touched dead bodies. Um, he uh, had relations with harlots. He, he basically broke everything in the, in the Nazarite rule book. And the haircut was really the last straw. <laughs> it was the final issue of the Nazarite vow that had remained unbroken at that point in time. So we see these things here. Uh, he shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself. See, verse by verse by verse, you see that this is a limited finite time. Um, and the other issues here. I'll let you read through this whole chapter on your own. Uh, but these were the natures, these were the aspects of the Nazarite vow. Now, do not confuse, as so many have, the Nazarite with the Nazarene. Alright? 
Jesus Christ was called a Nazarene because he was he grew up in the village of Nazareth. Therefore, he was called a Nazarene. Has nothing to do with taking a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite and a Nazarene are not the same, although people confuse them. All right. Particularly, they confuse them in uh, some different things, especially when they try to put Jesus Christ under the Nazarite vows and say, well, he never cut his hair, and we got all these uh, Renaissance paintings to prove that to us, that he had this long flowing hair, and, <laughs> and all of that. But I know that he was not under a Nazarite vow because I know that he touched dead bodies. He rose them from the dead. I know that he partook of alcoholic beverages. These are things he could not have done under a Nazarite vow. All right, back now to Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, the description of the Baptist here. It's quite interesting in this whole passage, there's a lot to... uh, to be given here. Uh, Because the Baptist is in prison. He's about to be executed. He starts to have a few doubts, questions. And Christ simply reassures him with Scripture in uh, verse 5. And then says in verse 6, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And, And encourages John the Baptist to be faithful until death, which would happen here shortly thereafter. Verse 7 As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John, that's the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. He was a prophet. He he prophesied the coming Christ. And yet, he performed no miracles. Makes him unique of all the Old Testament prophets. All the other Old Testament prophets needed the miracles to give the credentials to show that they were legitimate prophets. You know, Isaiah prophesied that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Yeah, right. You know, a 700-year prophecy, and yet miracles supplied to give the divine credentials. The Baptist required no miracles because he produced the Christ. He said, there he is. One who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Here is the one that's Malachi 3.1, that's Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That is a remarkable statement. <laughs> you know, raise your hand if your mom was a woman. Alright, that's Everybody. Everybody. From Cain and Abel onward, through the history of the world, the greatest Old Testament saint. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Dispensationally, it's amazing how the last shall be first, and it's amazing how the bride is going to be so exalted, not because of anything we've earned or deserved. And the least, the the worst Joe loser Christian that got saved and never learned to lick lived his whole life in carnality and died the sin and the death, is still a part of the bride. Is still a member of the body of Christ in Christ under the dispensation of the church. And that's an amazing witness of grace that 
boggles the mind to think of sometimes. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, here again is that language. Remember, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Here he says, if you are willing to accept it. In other words, you can think of it in this way. John himself is Elijah who was to come. In other words, he's the first advent forerunner. He's the first advent Elijah. He's the coming, he's the shadow of the coming Elijah. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The unbeliever won't understand this, but a believer with spiritual perception will understand what Christ is saying there. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. This generation was a bunch of spoiled brat kids that thought that, their, uh, that these prophets would, would dance to their music and thought that we could sing a fast song, you have to dance fast. We sing a slow song, you got to dance slow. And they're never satisfied. And the contrast, for John came neither eating nor drinking. Under a Nazarite vow, he partook of no alcoholic beverages. And they say he has a demon. What a nutcase. <laughs> the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He was not under a Nazarite vow. He, he ate with sinners. He entered into homes. He partook of their meals. He drank of their beverages. Not to drunkenness, of course. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. They weren't satisfied by anything. By either the Baptist on the one end or Christ on the other end. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This chapter gives us a lot of information on the Baptist. The nature of his life, the nature of his ministry, little glimpses. And things as they relate there. Alright, we will come back to Luke 1 next week. In our final few minutes though, let's say a few more things here with, uh, with relationship to um, these prophecies. All right? And a verse I love to, uh, to come to is in 1 Peter chapter 1. You want to join me there in 1 Peter chapter 1? I like this verse because it's easy to find. <laughs> it's in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 10, talking about salvation, the salvation of your souls, and other things here about the, uh, the Christian way of life. It's a tough life. Verse 6 says, we have been distressed by various trials, and it's necessary. We're going to go through these things. The proof of your faith, all right, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ you're not willing to go through testing, then you're not willing to glorify Christ at the judgment seat. <clears throat> it says in verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They weren't sloppy doing their homework. They studied. They looked into it. They wrestled with the Lord in prayer. Careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know 
what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They really had a hard time reconciling what we know now as First Advent and Second Advent prophecies. Because they saw sufferings, they saw glories. And they had a hard time with that. If you want to read the rabbinical writings, you'll see their endless debates. And so they ended up figured, uh, taking figurative language and allegorical interpretation and spiritualizing all of the suffering stuff. And they say, well, that's not really going to happen. That's, that's just kind of figurative for how poorly treated the Jews are going to be in their history. That the Jewish people are going to be persecuted, they're going to be afflicted, and so all of that, all those suffering passages, we figuratively apply those to the Jewish race, the Jewish people, uh, but when the, when the Christ appears, when the Messiah appears, of course, power and great glory, and we will rule this world. We will step on the Goyim, and the Gentiles will be crushed under our feet, and all the rest. That's, that's Jewish hermeneutics, that's Jewish theology today. And that's how, in the rabbinical times, they reconciled sufferings, and glory. Peter says that the prophets of old, the godly men, the one that weren't going to just simply allegorize and write off Scripture, recognized that there was two separate issues here at work. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, like Isaiah was told, seal it up. Like Daniel was told, seal it up. It's not for you. Ezekiel was told, seal this up. It's not for you. It's for a people yet to come. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced. <laughs> it's one of those, not your department, Daniel. Not your department, Ezekiel. That's not for you to know. That's coming down the road. Things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Hidden even from the angelic realm. Certainly hidden from the fallen angels. Hidden even from the elect angels. In so many ways, we're going to see the angelic conflict through the life of Christ and uh, how they did not know in the mystery of God's will the things that were going to unfold through the church. So, when we sort out First Advent, Second Advent prophecies, we can do that because we have mystery doctrine in the New Testament. We have church-age truth. We can look back and see first advent. We can look forward and see second advent. And we are uniquely positioned in history to do that. The Old Testament prophets, they did all the greatest homework in the world, careful searches and inquiries, and they were told that they could not know. They could not know. It was yet to be revealed. So next week... We'll do a little bit more of this. We'll show you some first advent, second advent prophecies, some of which are contained in the very same verse uh, of Scripture, and yet that verse gets ripped in half when you apply a dispensational ruler to it. And uh, and that's not just that's not just pastors or theologians forcing their system of interpretation on anything. That's the Bible itself explaining itself, and we recognize it when the Bible does that, and we say, oh, that's how we interpret. And so we get our interpretation method from the Scripture and then apply it to the Scripture and we do the best we can. All right? In my mind, we have the best way to approach Scripture because we have the way that Scripture itself approaches Scripture. We use the Word of God the same way that Jesus Christ used the Word of God. 
And that's, that's the greatest theology school you could ask for right there. <laughs> Hermeneutics taught by Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4. So we'll do that, we'll do that next week to introduce the, the next section of Luke. Any questions this morning before I cut you loose? Yes, ma'am. The purpose, I didn't hear you. The purpose of? Oh, the Nazarite vow? You know, um, what do you do? What do you do? You know, what if somebody, we have the same thing today. I think there, there really is a, a sense of, well, what do I do? Um, I'm a believer. I love the Lord. I want to serve Him. And I think a lot of young men end up going to seminary to become pastors because in their mind that's all they could do, you know. And they, they wash out because they don't have a spiritual gift of pastor teacher. They find out real quickly. <laughs> but there's that sense of, well, what do I do? I want to serve. Okay. Now, you're, uh, you're, uh, you know, uh, your name is Nick and you're from the tribe of Nathaniel. You'll never be a priest. You can't be. You don't, you don't qualify. You're not a Levite. You can't go into the temple. You can't serve. Your dad wasn't a priest. All right. You're not called as a prophet. You're not a prophet or a son of a prophet. What are you going to do? And yet you love the Lord and you want to serve. This was a vehicle provided for these to serve and to uh, to take this vow to enter into service. And they became servants to the Levites. They would then enter into that, not a priestly service, not a Levitical service, but an assistant capacity to the Levites. Like when Samuel was given to uh, to Eli, the high priest. Of course, Samuel himself had priestly lineage anyway. He qualified, but he was dedicated from birth to be given to the high priest. Um, so yeah, here's, uh, here's, you know, Susie from the tribe of, uh, of Simeon and she wants to serve. And so she takes this vow. She shaves her head. She stops drinking for a week, a month, a year, whatever she's going to do. And, uh, and she serves because she wants to, um, we, we don't want to lose track of the fact there was so much law, so much have to, so much ritual that not only were there the have to's of the law, but there were the want-tos. Think of all the hymns that David composed. Um, there's nowhere in Mosaic Law that, that stipulates trumpets or tambourines or dancing or hymns and things. David composed all those hymns, and he organized the Levitical, Levitical choirs. He organized all of the music of Israel, not because the law said he had to, but because he wanted to. These were expressions of, of faith and worship of believers who wanted to do something as unto the Lord. And that's typically what the Nazarite vow was for. Just a believer who wanted to. Like that fellow I met, uh, Harley from Chicago. He wants to go to the Philippines every year. In January, February, he goes to the Philippines. And those are good months to get out of Chicago anyway. But he just goes to the Philippines and builds cabinets and paints things. And he's a carpenter and he wants to serve. And two months a year, he goes to the Philippines and he does that. Just because uh, he wants to. And that's what the Nazarite vow was all about. Fasting is a want-to thing. Yeah, and that's given in, the, in Matthew as well, Matthew 6, uh, even to this day for believers in the church. to uh, uh, Prayer and giving and fasting are all uh, applications for the church today. That's right. Again, it's a want-to thing. Yep. Great questions. All right. Well, save if you have any more, save them for tonight. We'll take some more this evening. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you. For the answers to prayer you've given us, uh, thank you for uh, the good news report about Letty's brother. Uh, we're thankful for his safety. We do pray for all our military men and women that are in service and harm's way at this time. 
Uh, hedge them about, protect them, Father. Keep them in the, in the uh, arms of your love. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.